I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. Education sociologist James Coleman is most often remembered for his 1966 report on the equality of educational opportunity, a study that popularized the notion that students' family backgrounds and peers mattered more for their success than what happened in school and gave new momentum to efforts to desegregate America's schools. Few realize that Coleman himself saw that work as a detour from his main line of research, research focused on how academic games could be used to foster student engagement, effort, and ultimately achievement. Why was Coleman so excited about academic games? And could we put his ideas into action today? I'm Marty West, Executive Editor of Education Next, and joining me today is Greg Topo, National Education Reporter for USA Today, and the author of a new Ed Next article looking at these questions. Greg, thanks for being on the podcast with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I should also let our listeners know that you're the author of an excellent recent book, uh, The Game Believes in You, I think it is. That That's right. offers a broader look at the role of gaming in American education. So I really can't think of anyone better positioned to help us understand Coleman's work here. So I wonder if you'd start off by explaining his enthusiasm for academic games. What problem was he trying to solve? Sure. Well, uh, again, thanks for having me, Marty. Um, you know, the basic problem that Coleman was was staring at, and this is you know years before the what would become the Coleman Report um, became his kind of big, uh, you know, defining work. Um, he was looking at essentially what motivates teens. Why do they like to go to high school or not like to go to high school? Um, what are the sort of the carrots and the sticks in their lives? And what works in uh, motivating kids to do work um, in school? And one of the things that he found was that, I mean, in a nutshell, that grades were a very, very poor uh, uh, poor uh, motivation for teenagers, that they were much more interested in, you know, uh, social relationships and being sort of part of peer groups, and that um, they really understood at sort of a very deep, basic level that grades were kind of unfair. So what was the problem with grades? But, I mean, I think of grades as the dominant strategy we use to motivate students to work academically? I, I think what he found was that for most uh, young people that um, they were sort of, it was sort of like grading everybody on a curve that um, you know, there was a sort of free market for rank. Um, so, you know, although we think of grades as, you know, everybody is, you know, everybody could get an A if they worked really hard, what teens saw was that everybody was sort of lining up um, for you know to be ranked one after the other, um, and what uh, what happened as a result was that um, teenagers were really working very hard to sort of keep the basic level of effort down so that nobody um, had to work too hard. And the the contrast he made there was to athletics, right, where the competition was not relative within a school, but rather between schools. That's right. I mean, what he saw was that. Um, you know, in, in athletics, there was nobody basically, um, you know, I, I, his expression was, you know, there was no curve raiser in athletics that if your high school football team did well, it benefited everybody. 
Um, whereas if the kid sitting next to you in math class did well, you know, it, it, it worked against you. <laughs> so what he saw was that, you know, we should use the, the model of sports and the benefit that it brings to an entire school and think about academics in that way. And so this led to a series of proposals to create things like debate clubs and uh, math competitions and the like. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And he actually, you know, as you said in the introduction, you know, he he was um, he was working on this. He had developed about half a dozen games that he was piloting in Baltimore schools um, in the early um, '60s, and then he was called to do uh, the. Uh, equality of educational opportunity, and that sort of got him off the track of this, um, and onto a sort of a different, uh, you know, different strain of research, if you will. Um, and what he actually said, you know, years later was that, you know, when you know after the Coleman report came out, and um, you know, it obviously had just a kind of a you know revelatory effect on the system um, that we're all familiar with. Um, one of the things he said and one of the regrets he had was that um, his emphasis in the final report was more on administration, was more on sort of essentially moving people around and, and you know, thinking about how, you know, groups of students um, could, you know, benefit other groups of students. And what he kind of forgot um, was the... Um, you know, research from his earlier work that talked more about, you know, how students really felt about school, how students felt about one another, how students, um, you know, how, how they could use sort of social interaction to uh, to work harder, to, um, you know, benefit more from school. And one of the things he says, you know, is that essentially, you know, Integration might have actually worked better if we had focused a little bit more on this. So, <laughs> which I thought, you know, that was really fascinating to me. So Coleman, you know, follows this detour, which ultimately becomes sort of a almost permanent change in his research trajectory. But obviously, work around the concept of academic games continued. Uh, so tell mm -hmm. us about how that, uh, I guess space developed uh, mm -hmm. from the 1960s, you know, uh, in the decades that followed. I mean, we've had debate clubs and the like uh, going on, but they certainly haven't revolutionized the American education system. Yeah, and I think the problem, I, I mean, essentially the problem is that, you're right, there are academic competitions and there have been academic competitions for decades. Um, but the problem is that they're mostly focused on a very narrow strip of students. They're focused on, you know, high achievers and kids who are really, um, you know, fascinated with one subject, um, you know, whether it's, you know, spelling or, or math or history. And it actually just takes this narrow band of students. And what Coleman was hoping would happen was that it wouldn't just, the competitions wouldn't be focused around just a few kids who are, you know, really excelling in the certain topics but that it would sort of embrace the entire school, that everybody would be interested in this stuff. Um, so w what I found actually researching the book was that sort of in a very quiet way, there are people, uh, you know, working to do this, working to get kids uh, competing with one another on a sort of a, a grander scale, if you will. And is technology one of the factors that's led to that 
happening now? Is yeah. it become more feasible to try and pull this off? I think that's right. I, I, and I, I actually think technology is one of the major factors that's sort of pushing this now. Um, and when you, we've got people using, you know, the the uh, kind of the affordances of the Internet and, you know, social networking um, to make these tools work. And I describe a couple of them um, in the piece. What's almost puzzling about this is we associate games with uh, technology, maybe sort of a shift away from social interaction. Uh, mm -hmm. Really, the problem Coleman was starting from was a uh, stemmed from uh, the American teenager being a highly social character, uh, that that's yeah. really where their incentive structure derived from. And so I think that's what I find a little bit puzzling about linking these two uh, ideas. I mean, I, I think the thing, basically, the, to me, the idea that we have to remember is that, you know, young people are, are more social than adults are, even though adults can be very social. Um, I think they're, you know, the, the term that Coleman used is that, um, you know, that adults forget how person-oriented young people are, um, that they're not, they haven't moved into the sort of the world of, um, you know, as he says, cold impersonality in which many adults live. Um, I mean, you know, in a way it's kind of hard to, to square these ideas, but I mean, I, I think what he's saying is that if you can get behind someone, <laughs> you know, someone in your group, then that has a lot of power. Well, and, if, and maybe I'm mischaracterizing the way technology can be used in a gaming setting where it can actually be used in a way that facilitates social interaction rather than, uh, I guess, reduces it, which is the fear with screen time and the like. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's a lot of work being done on, on you know, on the, the ability of technology to bring people together around a common theme or around a common effort. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, if, if we think of only, you know, uh, technology is isolating us, then I think you have a problem. But, um, you know, a lot of people are thinking about using technology to basically focus people, focus a large group of people, um, you know, one endeavor one very key thing happening and that's what a, that's what i write about in the book and that's what i write about in the piece i mean one of them was actually uh, someone who i met through chatting with you a couple of years ago yeah that's right uh tim kelly a former student of ours yeah. at the uh harvard kennedy school um tell us a little bit about his company sure i mean you know i, I met tim and and as soon as he started describing what he was doing I was just just sort of intrigued. Um, so Tim, as you say, is a former student of yours at Harvard. Um, he came up with this idea to take a math competition, <coughs> excuse me, and and basically bring it online and and turn what was then uh, a very kind of small scale elite um, math, essentially group of math tests um, that students took on paper. And his idea was, let's put it online and let's allow students to compete in real time in different cities and different classrooms um, and then compare their, score, their scores. Um, his, his kind of his, his, the grain of the idea was this idea that he wanted to explore the power of, for lack of a better term, the personal best, that a, a student could do a, do a task, do some math, and then the next day do better at it, that's very powerful, he found. And 
if you could find a tool that would help kids do better and better and better every day, then you'd really have something. And what he found was that, you know, he, he could use technology to essentially uh, analyze how well a kid did on a given day on material, whether it's math or anything else, and then match that kid up with other similarly abled students and have them compete and see, you know, have, see how how they well they do against one another. But there's really nothing. I mean, you know, if if you talk to game designers, um, and and in a, in, a, in a sense, if you talk to almost anybody who is focused on this sort of thing, there's really nothing more motivating than you know working hard at something um, against someone who has similar abilities. I mean, it's an exciting thing. But a lot of people would say that competition is almost a dirty word in education circles, Greg. And, uh, you know, does that limit the appeal of this idea? I mean, I think I think teachers, you're right. I mean, in a way that, you know, most teachers are sort of, you know, they have kind of a phobia about competition. They don't want to hurt kids feelings. They don't want kids to get discouraged um, and then quit. Um, But I think somebody like Tim, uh, he would say um, that it's just. You know, we're worried about competition because it hasn't been done right up till now. Mm-hmm. But if we can tweak it a little bit and if we can make it work in a more sort of purposeful, uh, more kind of well thought out way, you know, like if we can get, you know, two kids whose abilities are perfectly matched, um, if we can get two schools, you know, that are doing equally well on something and put you know, put them against each other, then, then we're not having, you know, kids discouraged and quitting. Then we're having real excitement. Um, I mean, think about, you know, in football, you know, if you go to some little, uh, you know, 400 student high school in New England, you know, they're not going to pitch you against some, you know, team from Texas with, you know, 5,000 students, right? I mean, you're... So we found uh, ways to gonna... solve this problem, yeah. So, so we found ways to solve this problem uh, and and use competition effectively. And of course, Coleman's original point was that grades were inherently competitive in the first instance, right? Uh, right. And so, it's really not a question whether competition exists, but how you structure the competition in a way to encourage effort rather than to uh, denigrate it. So, uh, and I think I mean just one more thing. I mean, I think he found that you're right. Grades were competition, and kids understood that they were unfair competition. So uh, Tim's company, Arite, uh, it's now called. Uh, folks can learn about it from your article in Education Next. What else is the future of education gaming, uh, Greg? I mean, I, I think there are a lot of people who are really excited about some, you know, frankly, kind of um, very unusual and really sort of innovative um, ways to apply these some of these principles. Um, I mean, one of the things I say in the book is that as I started doing research on this, you know, I would just meet people every single day who were doing amazing things, and eventually it just got to a point where I just couldn't include them all. Mm -hmm. Um, What I say is that, you know, I couldn't, not only were there more people than I could talk to, but there were more people than I could ever talk to. Um, Really, you know, people thinking a lot like Tim about, you know, not only the, the value of competition, but also the value of, you know, helping kids you know, work on something and try, you know, fail and try again and fail and try again um, until they master it. Um, I met a lot of game designers who were very, very focused on some of these some of these issues and basically trying to help make school a more engaging uh, and fair place. But and also, by the way, 
uh, you know, we talk about something like play in a kind of a non-serious way. I mean, a lot of these game designers and a lot of the teachers they're working with, you know, really see it as a way to make school more rigorous um, and not more, not more easy, but, but in a way kind of harder, but in a fair way um, to get more material, more challenging material in front of more students. So the future is bright, I hear you saying, uh, and uh, readers can learn more about that future um, from your article in Education Next and also from your uh, book, The Game Believes in You. Uh, I think Coleman would be uh, maybe somewhat displeased about how far his, uh, I guess, how little progress has been made in an area he cared so much about, but maybe optimistic also about what's happening right now. Yeah, I would say check back in five years and we'll, we'll see what Coleman thinks. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll have you back then and, uh, and uh, settle that question then. So thanks, Greg, for uh, spending time with us. And again, um, you can find Greg's article uh, as part of our special issue commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Coleman Report in the current issue of Education Next. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org.